0: Yeah, thank you for your warm welcome. Rick, again, thank you for your kind words. Uh, uh, not worthy, but thank you for, for being so nice to me all the time. One of the great joys I have in coming back to Beijing, of course, is to get to spend a little time with Rick. It's always refreshing for me and um, necessary again this last week. So thank you for refreshing my heart in conversation and prayer. Um, I'm going to talk this morning from the passage that we just read, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, a story that a lot of us probably are pretty, pretty familiar with. I've been thinking lately quite a bit about this idea of my story and, um, and, and the story of Jesus, the story of, of the Gospel. So we've given four accounts in, in the New Testament of the story of Jesus. And how do I connect the two? How do I connect my story with the story of Jesus? Actually, in our generation, we hear a lot about trying to understand better our story. Uh, psychology, psychotherapy wants us to try to get back as far as we can and understand the things that shaped us in our lives. Um, so how do we connect our story with the story of Jesus? And we do that by looking at how the disciples, the, the, uh, what role they played in the story. We enter the story as disciples because that's what Jesus calls us to be. So I want this morning to look at this story, of Jesus calling a disciple Peter. It's kind of a paradigmatic story. It's the, probably the, the, most, the, the biggest story of Jesus calling a disciple. But in many ways Peter represents us. How does Peter enter the story of Jesus? What does it mean for him? And then how do, what do we learn from him as we try to enter into that story? As we understand the mission of Jesus through the four gospel stories, we understand our mission in life. That's simple. When we know what Jesus came to be and to do in this world, we understand what we are to be and do in this world. So as we can understand more deeply and more clearly His mission in this world, then we understand our mission. Uh, Lots of books on leadership these days, many, many books. And often if you pick up a book on leadership and if a well-known leader is asked what is the key for success in his leadership, he might say something like, to surround myself with the best people possible. So I'll go to Harvard, MIT, Beida, Tsinghua. I'll find the the cream of the crop and invite those people to walk with me. I'll surround myself with the best people I can. Uh, Jesus kind of took the opposite approach in his investment strategy. He chose people who were judgmental, competitive, impetuous, and eventually unfaithful to him when he needed them most. Well, this is the story we enter into through the, Gospels, through the, the four Gospels. And this story about Peter is where we're going to uh, plant our thoughts today. Four parts in the story. I think I have some PowerPoint slides to go along. The first part is the boat. The boat. So I think you can go to the slide. You might have a scripture there. Uh, after that. Verses 1 to 3. Peter had been fishing all night and he hadn't caught anything. Uh, I had a day of jet lag a couple of weeks or had about a week and a half of jet lag a couple of weeks ago and there's one night where I just tried my best to stay awake all day made it till 9 30 at night which wasn't too far from my bedtime anyway just couldn't keep my eyes open went to bed I woke up at 10 30 one hour of sleep awake all night, the next day I had lots of meetings, exhausted, dragged through the day. So I wonder how Peter felt this night or this morning after he had worked all night, hadn't slept, but he had been fishing, he had been working hard all night. He must have been exhausted. So he's cleaning his nets, ready to go home and have a sleep. And then Jesus is there and says, hey Peter, can I use your boat? And Peter says, okay. It was probably a little bit of an inconvenience for Peter to give Jesus his boat, he was probably tired emotionally and physically, probably wanted to go home, but no big deal. Sure, you can have my boat. So Jesus takes his boat, or Peter, Peter's with him on his boat, and they go out into the water, and Jesus preaches from his boat for a little while. It might be sort of like us being willing to give Jesus maybe a room in our office one day a week for a Bible study, or maybe sign up to teach Sunday school one day a week, or just to do something for him. We can lend Jesus these little bits of our resources for uh, a time here and there. It doesn't cost us a whole lot. Peter's on the boat with Jesus. Jesus is teaching. He's probably thinking it's going to come to an end pretty soon. I'll bring my boat in, and then I can go home and get some sleep. That's part one, the boat. And then we move on to the fish. After teaching from his boat for however long, Jesus makes another request of Peter. He says, Peter, let's go fishing again. Now Peter begins resisting a little because he's the fisherman. Jesus is the carpenter slash teacher. He's been at it all night. He's caught no fish, they're not biting. But now Jesus becomes a little bit more intrusive. Now, it's one thing to give Jesus a room in my office for a Bible study one day a week, but it's another thing for him to think he knows how to run my business. The fish were Peter's bread and butter. It was his expertise. It was what he knew best. He spent most of his days plying this craft. But at this second request, you notice his response. He again says, okay. I've been fishing all night. I've caught nothing. But if you think we should go out, I'll do it. I'll let down the nets again. Now again, there's not a whole lot required of Peter, just a little bit more time. He might be thinking, yeah, we're going to go out. I'll humor Jesus. We'll let down our nets. After we catch no fish, I'll bring the boat in, the nets. I'll go home and finally get some sleep. And of course, he's completely unprepared for what happened. They caught so many fish that the nets were breaking. The boats began to sink. And now Peter is starting to put two and two together. This person who has been teaching on his boat apparently actually does know fishing better than he does. It seems like he has the ability to make the fish swim where he wants them to swim. He can command these fish in the water. Now again, it's one thing to give Jesus a little bit of my time one day a week, but it's another to truly know that he knows everything about my business, that he can command my success, he can command my failure. Sometimes that makes me wonder why we work so hard to be successes at work, and I suppose it's the world's game. We have to. We can't really control our schedules that much when we're working for other people. The world requires a lot from us in work. But still, there's this mindset. Uh, The other day I got in a conversation with a guy in in Hong Kong. I was in the bank waiting for uh, an appointment and he was a local guy and asked where I was from. I said, I'm from Canada. And he said, that's a horrible country. <laughs> he said, that is like a very, in- very, uh, um, what's that word, inappropriate or inconvenient? Not a good place for, uh, for Chinese because Chinese like to make money. We like to make money. We're entrepreneurs. The government takes half your money in taxes. It's a bad place to go. Now, if he thought that about my country, Canada, how would he feel about the Kingdom of Heaven, (laughs) where Jesus requires everything of us? Because He knows everything about us. He can command our, our success, our failure, in just a moment. So why do we work so hard? It makes me think of Psalm 127, where the psalmist said, "...Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city." Its watchmen stay awake in vain. In vain you rise up early, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved in their sleep. Well, Peter could see that in just a few minutes. He caught more fish, probably, than he ever had in his whole life. So he's going in a progression here in his understanding of Jesus. From lending his boat to Jesus for a little while, and then realizing that Jesus can actually command everything, the most important things about his life, his own livelihood. So we go to the third part of the story, and that's the broken. Now, there could have been a couple of different directions Peter could have gone in his response to Jesus the more likely response I think would have been to realize what a stroke of luck it had been to have Jesus in his boat. (laughs) If Jesus could do this once, he could certainly do it again. Before, Before long, Peter would be the most successful fisherman in all of Galilee, maybe the whole world. He'd be on the Forbes 500 list before long. So Jesus had this miraculous power, and certainly Peter could harness it for his success. Apparently, Jesus liked him. There's a couple of ways for us to imagine how we connect our story to Jesus' story. We may think that if we make some small sacrifice for him, if we lend him our boat for a little while, he'll end up making our lives better. Or we might imagine that Jesus is kind of a magician that we want to harness for our own success. And I think, probably, most of us would be very happy if the story ended here. Peter lent Jesus his boat, he got a great catch of fish, he became rich, and they all lived happily ever after. We may think that we want a magician who can fix things, kind of this spiritual repairman that we can call on 24 hours a day, and we can co-opt him for the story that we're living in. C.S. Lewis, when he was a young boy, his mom died. I think he was 10 years old. He didn't really know God at the time. He was raised uh, in a Christian home. Uh, But he prayed to the God that he knew as much as he understood him. And I just wanted to read a little quote from his book, Surprised by Joy. My mother's death was the occasion of what some, but not I, might call my first religious experience. When her case was pronounced hopeless... I remembered what I had been taught, that prayers offered in faith would be granted. I accordingly set myself to produce by willpower a firm belief that my prayers for her recovery would be successful and, as I thought, I achieved it. When nevertheless she died, I shifted my ground and worked myself into a belief that there was to be a miracle. The interesting thing is that my belief produced no results beyond itself the thing hadn't worked. But I I was used to things not working and thought no more about it. I think the truth is that the lie into which I had hypnotized myself was too irreligious for its failure to cause any religious revolution. Here's the thing. I had approached God, or my idea of God, without any love, without honor, even without any fear, he was, in my mental picture of this miracle, to appear as as neither Savior or Judge, but merely as a magician. And when he had done what was required of him, I supposed he would simply, well, go away. Strangely, Peter doesn't make this connection with the miracle. He doesn't see the fish as a reward for lending Jesus his boat. He doesn't fixate on the sudden success When Peter realized what had happened, rather than trying to co-opt Jesus into making his life more successful, he does the opposite. He asks Jesus to leave. Oh Lord, leave me. I'm such a sinful man. Now on the surface, that's a really strange response. Why would this great catch of fish lead Peter to think about his own sinfulness? Success doesn't usually have that effect on people. But he knew that he had no right to be in the same boat as Jesus. And this is what made Peter fit to be a disciple. The miracle didn't reflect on his goodness in any way, on his sacrifice of giving Jesus his boat, of his worthiness to be a successful fisherman. It showed him that he's a sinner. It showed him that he doesn't have any right to be with Jesus. This was Peter's breaking point. Now, Peter had been minding his own business quite literally. He wasn't seeking to be called by Jesus. He wasn't looking for anything in life but fish. But Jesus appeared to him, demonstrated his power, and Peter could do nothing but fall on his face before him and say, Please go away. I don't have any right to be near you. Leave me. I'm a sinful man. That is the point in which we enter the story of Jesus. We can't co-opt him for our lives. We enter at that point where we're broken before him with a knowledge of who we are and that we have no right to be with him. So that leads to part four, the call. It's then that Peter got the call to follow Jesus. Jesus tells him, don't be afraid. I haven't come to hurt you. I've come to give your life meaning. Don't be afraid. I've come to make you who you were created to be. Don't be afraid. One of G.K. Chesterton's most memorable lines is, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been difficult and left untried. I often discuss this question with my friends here in China. Is it possible to be a believer, a Shinto, and not a disciple, a Mantu? And almost all of them will say, yes, it is. In fact, most of our churches are full of Shintu, full of believers, and there's very, very few Mantu, very few uh, disciples in our churches. The disciples up here, the believer is down here. But we don't see anywhere in the gospel story where Jesus called people to be believers. He called them to be followers, to follow him, to walk in this path of discipleship with him, to enter his story. A believer might think that I can squeeze out a little bit of my time, my resources, my money to lend to Jesus, but a disciple follows him. Jesus didn't come to recruit believers. He came to recruit disciples. And later, Peter would be that first disciple who would say it right out loud to Jesus, you are the Christ. He would get the confession right. He came to believe and know who Jesus truly was, but first he needed this self-awareness. I'm a sinful man. Now, we think that the disciples probably followed Jesus for about three years. If you run a three-year training program and you have 12 participants in the program, you would hope that by the end of the time, they would turn out quite good, right? Peter, right at the end of the story, will make this vow to Jesus that even if everyone else leaves you, I will not. In fact, I'm ready to die with you. And then a few hours after making that vow, he says the final words he would say while Jesus was still alive before he died on the cross. And those words were, I never knew this guy. I wonder, when Peter said that and the rooster crowed, if he could remember Jesus saying those words to him, don't be afraid. You see, all through the story, he's going to prove what he said In chapter 5 at his call, I'm such a sinful man. When he said that about himself, notice Jesus didn't try to correct him. Jesus didn't say, hey, no, no, you've got lots of potential. Don't say that way about you. Don't, Don't talk that way about yourself. I'm going to use you for great things in this world. No, he said the words, don't be afraid. I wonder if Peter in that moment of his betrayal, in his unfaithfulness, heard Jesus say those words. As Jesus has called us to be his disciples and we fail Him. We're unfaithful to Him. Can we hear Him say those words to us, receiving us in our failure in His embrace? Don't be afraid. I've drafted you into my story. And then Peter gets this call to be fishing for people. Peter, Jesus wanted to incorporate Peter into His kingdom work so that, the, that His story Peter's story would be swallowed up in the story of Jesus. Those fish represented Peter's life, his livelihood, everything he had done up to this point. And now he's fishing for people. So as we think about this story of discipleship, just I want to give you these, remind you of these three categories just to reflect on as we look at our lives. The three categories of discipleship are the boat, my boat, Some might be in this category, giving Jesus a little bit here and there, maybe a regular tithe on Sunday even, maybe being willing to be on the Sunday school roster once a month, (laughs) maybe having a Bible study in the office, lending him something that we have, my boat. Those aren't bad things, but they're not necessarily the makings of a disciple. They may be the things that we're trying to lend Jesus to help him be successful in this life, but it's still my stuff. It's my boat, it's my office, it's my money, it's my time. And I can lend Jesus a little bit here and there. Some of us might mostly be in that category. The second category is the fish. A lot of us are really trying to go through life increasing our catch of fish, aren't we? We have certain investment strategies for life. We hope that things will come out better for us in the end. But most of our thoughts about our lives really are about ourselves, if we're honest, our success, our livelihood, our health. Are we trying to squeeze Jesus into our lives? When I was in my 20s, I started out pretty early in this game. I'm 58 this year, so Rick was right. 1981, I went to Hong Kong and uh, started some work there with the organization that I was with. And took myself really, really seriously. I just thought I was, you know, out to save the world. It was so important that Hong Kong had me. They were so fortunate to have me there to do God's work for them. But I realized at that time, at one point, that my prayer life was entirely about the things that I was doing, entirely about my ministry. I remember one day just realizing, you know, if I didn't have this ministry that I was doing, this really important ministry, I probably wouldn't have anything to pray about. I would have absolutely nothing to talk to God about. What I wanted to do was to to, to squeeze God into the thing that I was doing. And whether we have ministries like that or not, it's very easy for us to have this mindset that I want to co-opt Jesus for something in my life. That's what C.S. Lewis was talking about in that quote from Surprised by Joy. We want a magician who's going to wave a wand and make things really great for us or my life the difference between us and the first disciples of course they would become apostles and they laid down their vocations to follow and to learn jesus teaching so they could disseminate it in all the places he would call them to so they had to lay down their positions but unlike them most of us are not called to lay down the vocations that we are about in life, but we're called to glorify Jesus within the sphere of of the work He's called us to do. But that's where the difference between them and us ends. In the same way as them, we're called to live fully this life of discipleship, to leave every heart attachment for the sake of relationship with Christ. And there's three things I want to say about this as we come to an end here. Three things, the first, a disciple. I think I have a slide. Yes. Uh, Learns from Jesus. A disciple, first of all, is a learner. We're committed to learn from him always, daily. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, Come to me, all of you who are wearied and laid down. And then what did he say? I'm going to make you all better? No, learn from me. Come and learn. As disciples, we are first and foremost learners. Who in our lives are we learning from? As disciples, we need Jesus to interpret everything in life for us. We need him to interpret politics in this country, in the country that you are from, your country of origin. We need Jesus to understand life from his perspective. We need him to help him to understand ourselves where we've gone wrong and where this world has gone wrong. We need to learn what Jesus thinks about sickness and dying and politics and war. We're learners. In that first great teaching, last time when I was here, um, Rick preached the sermon, and he preached. It had such an impact on me. He stood up and just uh, quoted to you the Sermon on the Mount right after communion. Matthew 5-7, to Jesus' first great sermon, and I believe the most foundational words of teaching from Him for His disciples, in that very first sermon, Jesus addressed in commanding His disciples, first and foremost, their relationships with brothers. That was the number one priority for Him. And you know how He started? With their anger, with their feelings toward a brother. He said, as my followers, you are not even allowed to harbor anger in your heart for another person. And then he went on to say you can't insult them, um, you can't treat them bad. And then he said, even if you think, if you imagine your brother has something against you, you have to take the initiative and go to them and resolve your relationship. Priority number one for him in his teaching were his disciples. Are you willing to learn from him completely about every relationship that you have? to fight through all the bitterness, to reach the goal of forgiveness. When we hear that, don't we want to say, Jesus, leave me, I'm such a sinful man. I can't do it. So as a disciple, my first task is to learn from him. Everything, my attitudes, my affections, all of my relationships. Secondly, obey him. Not only I learn, but I obey fully in all things. Jesus said that the person who hears his words, puts them into practice, actually builds on a foundation in life. But you, if you hear my words, this is how he ended the Sermon on the Mount. If you hear and you don't do it, you're building on sand. Hearing him is one thing, obeying him is another. But that's what a disciple does. We hear and we obey. Finally, we fully seek his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And here, I'm just going to end. Oh, no, I think I have another quote there. The kingdom of heaven. A Bonhoeffer quote, right? No more slides? Okay, I sent you the wrong slides. The kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he described himself as a seed. And he said that, uh, as a seed, all that I have to do is to be planted in the ground and, and die. And, uh, and then he said, and if you want to follow me, you've got to be the same thing. you just got to see yourself as a seed. In other words, he's saying, I haven't called you to do great things for me. I haven't called you to build big organizations and big companies. And haven't called you to save the world. I've called you to be a seed that's willing to be planted in the ground and to die. To seek first his kingdom means that we're willing to walk with him in the way of death. And this is where the story of Jesus becomes our story. Because in all four gospel accounts, the point, the destination for Jesus is the cross. That fills up each of the four gospel stories, Jesus on the cross. And he said to his disciples, this is where I'm going. If you're coming into my story, this is where you're going. Are you willing to walk in the way of death? So the quote that I would have put up there is a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died at age 39 for opposing the Nazis in World War II Germany. Bonhoeffer, in his great book on discipleship, based on the Sermon on the Mount, The Cost of Discipleship, said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Are we willing for this to be the story of our lives, the story of daily walking out the death of Jesus from day to day in every way? And that will be applied in so many different ways in each one of our lives, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in the society that we live in here, we're walking in the way of death. And that's how we get into the story, by the gracious call of Jesus. When I was a teenager, late teenager, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I um, went to a Bible school, and that's where I realized that this is what I wanted to do. I realized God had called me to, to understand His Word and to and to. to teach it and proclaim it, but the greatest problem I've had, I had, I was full of fear. To stand in front of uh, two people and say anything, I would turn beet red. My voice would start shaking. I hated it. I resisted. You know, it was about probably two decades that I could not overcome this. And, And I knew God had called me to do it, but I couldn't overcome it. It was death to me, true death. I hated it. I would look for any excuse to avoid it, to get away from it. If someone invited me to speak somewhere, I'd hope it would be canceled so I wouldn't have to go and stand in front of people. In the 80s, I went to Hong Kong and I learned Cantonese, broken Cantonese. Then I had to stand up in front of people and use broken Cantonese to talk to them. It was 11 years ago I moved to Beijing and I learned broken Mandarin. Now I have to stand in front of people and use broken Mandarin to talk to them. God's called me in three different languages uh, to do this thing that was the hardest thing for me. It was the way of death. But he knew me better than I knew myself. The things that I wanted to avoid, he had to push me into. I had to become the seed that was planted in the ground. So this idea of death plays out in so many ways in all of our lives. He's called us to follow him. Of course, the end of the story is resurrection. Life is is where we're going. That's, you know, of course that's where it ends. But we have to walk this path. So that is how we enter the story of Jesus. So as we finish up here, I just wanna maybe pray for us and ask us to think maybe the Holy Spirit can help us to identify in our lives. Are there ways of of death for us? Do we need to die to some attitude in a relationship? Do we need to die to some misplaced hope? Do we need to die to something that we want to avoid because we're afraid? Do we need to die to a habit? Thank you for the grace of your Holy Spirit, true life for us rivers of living water coming out of our lives. Thank you for refreshing us daily with your spirit, by your power. Give us courage, even in our failures, to keep going and to keep making the choices, to say, I'm willing. Give us the courage for that, but mostly our Lord Jesus. We ask that you'll help us to know truly your embrace of us as your disciples. Thank you that we haven't chosen you. You've chosen us. You've drafted us into this great story of your life that lasted for a little while in this world but goes on forever because you reign eternally. Bless us as we seek to live it out where you've called us to be. In your great name we pray, amen.